Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to Tremors, Making Perfection, the podcast. I'm your host, Michael Gross, and every Friday for the next six weeks, we're going deep on the making of Tremors with the people who made it. From the very first draft of the script that birthed the Graboids, to the challenges of filming in the middle of the desert, the cast and crew are going to tell you everything you need to know about the monster movie that became a cult classic. So Graboid yourself a seat, and let's make perfection. Who is the team behind the suspiciously penis-shaped Graboid design? And how did they bring it to life without the help of CGI that we're so used to seeing today? In this episode, visual effects master Alec Gillis talks through how he got into his line of work, the artistry of practical effects, and the challenges of dragging a giant monster puppet out into the middle of nowhere and making it look as terrifying as it does on screen, and still does, after 30 years of technological advancements. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive & June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. 
Where does your interest in uh, effects and monsters come from? My uh, interest in effects, uh, particularly monsters, uh, goes back to childhood, really. I, you know, I, um, my father uh, was a fan of special effects movies and makeup and so on, so he probably let me see some things uh, at a young age that, you know, maybe I shouldn't have seen. Um, and uh, I just kind of always was tinkering in the garage and making little films and, and so forth. And, and basically, I think I was never told by anyone, uh, any, any adult uh, authority figure, that I shouldn't do it or couldn't do it for a living. So it was just sort of a foregone conclusion that I would, I would go into becoming a monster maker. And were there any films that inspired you? Yes, my father would show me uh, movies that uh, over my mother's objections, and sometimes he would wake me up, you know, uh, at nine or ten o'clock at night, and you know, when I was like five years old, and say, "You got to come see this," and I'd come out and be rubbing my eyes, you know, "What's he talking?" And it would be Ray Harryhausen, you know, movie Jason and the Argonauts with the skeletons coming out of the ground and sword fighting, and I think something about being a little kid, impressionable little kid, and having just awakened, these images were kind of burned into my brain. And um, they, ha they just started me off on a, a, a life of fascination with uh, creatures and effects. And, and my dad knew a little bit about how things were done. You know, he could tell me that the original King Kong was that big. And so it was just an amazing world to me that these, these incredible visuals could be created um, by, you know, the use of miniatures or, or rubber or, you know, mechanical means and so I just had to uh, I was just always I always wanted to peel the the layers off and, and see how things uh, were accomplished. Steve Wilson mentions Ray Harryhausen as an influence. Yeah the work of um, Ray Harryhausen the stop-motion animator was uh, influential on a, on a huge number of people of my generation and before you know, George Lucas and Steven Spielberg also uh, uh, cite him as one of their big inspirations. I know Steve Wilson, the, the writer and producer of the Tremors series, um, loves it as well. And uh, it's being passed on uh, to a lot of younger people um, because it's, it's got a, uh, uh, his, his work was so expressive and it was, he was at the center of it. So he, he was an artist who was expressing who he was as an artist not just through the stories that he was creating in these films, but also in the movements and performances of, of the characters that he designed. So for me, when I realized that there was a single person who was responsible for most of my favorite monsters, I thought, well, that's what I got to do. I've got to be that person. Can you describe what your life was like back then? In 1987, I think it was... Um, I had worked for Stan Winston for a few years. Tom Woodruff um, had worked there for five years. And Stan did a little movie called Pumpkinhead that he directed, and Tom and I were um, part of the, the team that created the effects for that film. And Stan at that point announced that he was uh, not going to be doing effects anymore for, uh, for the movie industry at large. He was just going to do them for his own films. So that meant... To me, that meant, oh, I don't get to work with James Cameron or Robert Zemeckis or all of these other filmmakers that I'd hoped to work for. It will only be for Stan. I love Stan. He, he was my mentor. Um, but he was also carrying a kind of a big crew of people out of loyalty. So 
I thought, well, you know what? I'm, I'm not in this to, I'm in this for my own self-expression and, you know, I'm an artist. I've got to make my own way. So I told Stan that I, um, that I was ready to leave and he very quickly said, well, thank you very much. <laughs> Cause I think he was happy to have me off payroll. Um, but it was all, it was all uh, with the best of, um, of, uh, of, of uh, you know, intent and we were, we were friendly uh, about it all. And Tom came to the same conclusion shortly thereafter and we were kind of kicking around going, well, what do we do? How do we, you know, I've got a wife who's expecting a child and just bought a house and he's saying, yeah, I just bought a house too and what are we gonna do? I think Tom had a little kid at the time. Um, so we thought, well, maybe we'll team up, uh, you know, um, and we had a script that we had written that we had presented to Gail Hurd and it got a good reaction. Her people really liked it. And we thought, oh, naively, we thought, here we go. We're going to make a little movie and uh, we'll, bring the, we'll bring the project back to Stan and, you know, Stan's guys can do the effects and maybe Stan will want to direct it. And, and of course, uh, as these things go, um, it didn't. <laughs> and uh, so the movie never got made and, and then we were worried and then we were saying like, uh, how do we make a living? What do we, so, um, so we decided to, you know, start a company and, uh, and, and, you know, that's what, after some languishing and after, uh, you know, a lot of worry, uh, Tremors was the first feature that we did as ADI. Kevin Bacon, Fred Ward, Tremors. Can you walk me through the first incarnations of the Graboids? Well, uh, the design of the Graboids was very loosely described in the script. Um, I, I believe it was a really nice kind of loaded little sentence. It, it, it said the, the worm's head opens up like a grotesque flower. And we thought that's evocative, right? It doesn't take a lot of words to, but that's really all the description was. They had, there was a conversation, what are they? Are they prehistoric? Are they, you know, are they alien? And so we liked the ambiguity and the script never answered the question as to where their, what their origins were. So that gave us a lot of freedom to, to start designing. So Tom and I would bring these books to the meetings and spread these nature books out and everybody would page through them. We would have gone through and put post-it marks on, on um, images of uh, creatures that, that we like. And, and then it just became sort of this blender of like, well, here's what everybody likes. Here's textures that people are responding to and, and, and things that, they're, that they don't respond to. And, and what you're what the director doesn't respond to is every bit as valuable as what the director responds to. So we just started um, sketching and um, doing loose drawings. And we were kind of smitten by the uh, heads of snapping turtles, which, which did survive into the, into the look of the, of the finished grab or that kind of hooked beak sort of thing. Um, but something snapping turtles, some snapping turtles have, which is pretty neat, is that they can draw their heads back into this pile of flesh around them and sort of extra protection. So we thought that would be cool if they, if they ram up and they're just sort of this like, you don't know what this thing is. It's just like a, a giant muscle, you know, that comes up and, and then this head extrudes out from inside this flesh. And we did some sketches and Gail said, this is not gonna be a movie about giant dicks chasing people through the desert. And we were like, oh, I guess it does kind of look like that, doesn't it? So we circumcised the worms and um, exposed the, the, the head of the worm 
Um, and, and, and it was a really nice, you know, we just thought there might be an extra beat. We we're actually riffing on what Cameron did with the queen, where when you first see the queen, the head pushes out from under the shell. Um, and, but that didn't, you know, it was a totally different application. And uh, Gail was right. She was correct. She said, I showed my, uh, this drawing to the women in the audience. There's no way we're making a movie like that. <laughs> so we learned our lesson and uh, we were grateful to Gail for that observation. And how would circumcising them make them any less phallic? <laughs> well, I guess it depends on which uh, part of the world you're in. How they get you. They're under the goddamn ground. What the hell are they? Sons of bitches. How'd you go about constructing a graboid? Yeah, the graboids were uh, one of the larger creatures that had been done as puppets, if you will, uh, at that point. Um, and certainly for our shop. Uh, so we had to really sort of think hard about how we were going to accomplish this. And what we came up with was we, we pitched a split between full-scale and miniature versions. Um, and this split had worked well on aliens, and Gail spoke that language. We'd all been through that together. And so we said, like, you know, let's have, you know, a, a, a decent schedule of a miniature tabletop shoot wherein we can have full-body worms that are squirming around, we'll do them in a variety of ways. We'll make them hand puppets, we'll make mechanical table-operated tentacle mechs and all that kind of stuff. And we'll put them in miniature sets. And you may as well get the Skotak brothers, Robert and Dennis, who won an Oscar for uh, Aliens, to do all that work and we'll put our monsters into the... And Gail was like, no-brainer, that's perfect. Uh, then that left us with the full scale, which was, well, how are we going to accomplish it? At that time in our career, we had not done big hydraulic mechanisms, um, and not a lot of people had for uh, for movies, especially when you start thinking, well, these are going to be out in the desert with the grid of the sand. We've got to dig deep holes and put these you know, heavy mechanisms. So we're like, eh, let's just make it a big uh, body puppet, right? We'll put Tom Woodruff in the puppet at times. And uh, so we built a rig that Tom could hold the head up and it had a support on it so it took the weight off. And then we had other puppeteers, uh, you know, off screen with 20-foot cables leading to giant levers that would open and close the mouth. Um, and between those two approaches, you know, we created the illusion of these very energetic and athletic uh, uh, monster worms. And what materials did you use? Well, we to create the graboids, we would start with uh, a clay sculpture, a full-scale clay sculpture. It was pro at least a ton of clay. Uh, and then from that, we would make large fiberglass negative molds. And then into the negative molds, we, we would pour our, our foam latex. And foam latex is, a, is a, a fantastic material that I think its first use was on The Wizard of Oz for facial appliances. <clears throat> but it's a very, it's, it's comparatively lightweight and comparatively durable. You have to do a lot of reinforcing. But basically you're doing a big giant skin of rubber 
and creating a, um, an understructure inside it that holds its shape. I think in, in our case, um, we ended up just doing hoops of aluminum. So it was like a big hoop skirt. So we could get some jiggle out of it and you could have a person inside it operating it and you know, creating a lot of activity. Uh, our goal was to make it as lightweight as possible but when you get into this kind of sculptural detail that we had going on on that character, um, you can't really use theatrical techniques or theatrical materials like gossamer fabrics and things that you see in stagecraft. It has to be, you know, it has to look like the real thing. And, and along with that, uh, those specs come some weight issues as well. So we had a lot of exhausted puppeteers. Tom Woodruff, as I mentioned, uh, was in the hole a lot, doing a lot of the puppeteering and then I was outside the pits with uh, with our other puppeteers uh, directing the performance of tentacles coming out of mouths and uh, jaw parts opening and closing and etc. We occasionally had some breakage of the graboids you know that that happens cables will snap you know especially when you're puppeteering like we had you know big levers and cables that would open and close the side mandibles and the jaw but that those mandibles would bash into the ground. You know, we would we would dig a hole and then create a, a berm around it, and then we'd have to sort of you know place the the creature out past that berm so its mouth could open because it didn't have the power to like just push dirt away. But there were times where when the coordination of the puppeteering gets out of sync and the head rolls and somebody gives it a good yank to give a good strong opening and it just hits the ground, it's not going anywhere, so that force has to, you know, it snaps the cable, and then you have to stop and uh, replace the cable, or more than likely, what, more than likely what it would do, it, it would break the cable at the um, controller end, so we would just cut the housing of the cable, pull, you know, pull more, uh, pull more of the, of, the, of the cable itself out, wind it around the pulley and go, so, the, so as we shot the controllers were getting inching towards the, the creature uh, regularly. And then we'd take it back to the train station where we were uh, based and, uh, you know, at the end of the day and, and start making repairs. And we repaired things quite often, repainted things and um, because we put them through a lot. What a way to make a living, eh? Can you walk us through the scene in the movie where the graboid bursts through the floor? The attack on Walter Chang's uh, store starts with a graboid um, busting up through the floor. So for those interiors, the, the store had been built um, in uh, Valencia on a, on a soundstage. And uh, we shot surrounding footage and you know we shot all that. I'm trying to think if if the if the floor itself um, was a cutaway, but we had a big in the in the soundstage. W there was a big um, sunken area. It was it was like a water tank in this soundstage, and they built the store over top of it, and that enabled us to put a a big track down, lay a big track. This was Art Brewer and his 
physical effects guys had this track with a, um, I, th I think it was probably a Chapman dolly on it with a boom arm that could do this. So we rigged uh, our worm onto that boom arm so we could get a running start with this thing of maybe 15, 20 feet with 10 guys pushing with all their might and cranking it up right at the right time and hitting those floorboards and busting through. Lots of Fuller's Earth. Evo Cristante was a genius with his breakaways and all the sets that he designed. And so we got that initial shot of, of the creature bursting up. And then we had a multiple rigs to get, uh, you know, Walter Chang into the mouth of the character. And we came up with this idea of like, what if the tentacles wrap around him, they spike into him, they pull him in, but he gets pulled in and his leg ends up at a weird, awkward angle breaking. So the leg is, you know, sticking out awkwardly. So we made a little, you know, we cast the actor's leg and made a, a puppeted leg that sticks out, you know, so that he can look um, extra pathetic. But there was a lot of work in that set in the attack of tentacles grabbing things and all the shelves falling over. And that was intercut with work that was done on location where the roof of the, of the, um, of the store was pitching and yawing. They called it the rock and roll roof. And it was all built... Again, Evo, Evo had the same sort of limitations that we had where, you know, you, you weren't really, uh, you didn't really have the budget to do fancy hydraulics and anything like that. So you had to come up with ways that were safe for actors, but also reliable and simple in their construction. So we were doing things that, you know, practical solutions to things that no doubt had been done since movie making began. Um, which was kind of cool because we were out in Lone Pine where they've been making movies since movies began. And I guess with Tremors, it's really, really unusual for a horror movie to be set outdoors in broad daylight. Yes, the the marching order of, uh, you know, putting these Graboids out in broad daylight was, was a bit daunting. You know, uh, we had come off of movies like Predator and Aliens where it's usually set at night and, you have a lot, there's a lot that's forgiving and a lot that helps you because it's what you don't see in horror films that scares you as much or more than what you do see because it lets the audience's imagination run wild. In this case, we knew at some point there had to be a big payoff where in broad daylight you see these creatures and they've got to be scary. But what was baked into the script and what is the, the brilliance of Steve and Brent's writing is that you had a lead up to it so that you were, you, your imagination was already engaged and activated by seeing the mounds of dirt, uh, you know, and things jiggling and, uh, you know, dust puffs and things like that um, before you got to see what the creature actually looked like. Um, and then, of course, the mislead that the, you know, when they pull the tongues off the underside of the truck and you think, oh, that's what it is. It's like a bunch of weird snake monsters, but no, it's only a hint at a larger creature. So it was paid out very nicely. Beyond that, uh, these, these creatures had characters. They, had, they were learning, and they were naturalistic, and they were behaving like intelligent animals, and our characters understood that, so there was that sort of cat and mouse thing going on towards the end of the film, which was an extra level of... Uh, of uh, to, for a non-anthropomorphic character to do that kind of thing was 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 very fresh to us and very exciting. And how did you go about blending three D models with CGI? 
In the case of aftershocks, the CGI technology was relatively new then. So there were a lot of unknowns for us uh, as VFX artists. So we worked closely with Phil and his company uh, to make sure that we were not presenting them with uh, textures uh, or m stretchy skin or anything like that that might create a problem for them on that budget. We understand that they could solve any problem with enough money, but when you're talking about a lower budgeted film, um, you, you have to be mindful of the budget. So like for instance, uh, one of the things Phil said was, well, if the legs c can be more socketed rather than you know, skin stretching, webbing between leg and body, that would be helpful. So we looked at uh, um, um, uh, the, the rhinoceros, for instance, and said, oh, we were like, look at that. Look at how that, there's a big sort of like fender that comes over the top of the thigh that's a, a big, meaty, armored plate. So we adopted that uh, as a design cue to sort of help them in, in their, in their uh, animation work. Um, and then, you know, we just would uh, provide them with the models that they could photograph or scan, all the parts and pieces that they need so that, the, so that the match would be as close as it could be. And then also, you know, for us, um, we come from an era where you were a little more uh, uh, permissive of um, continuity uh, kind of mismatches. Uh, if it was to get a better dynamic or to improve the action, there tends to be a mindset, a modern mindset where, no, 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 it has to look exactly, the full scale thing has to look exactly, otherwise it's a failure. And that's not really the case. And Phil saw it that way as well. Like, well, so what? In that shot, their feet, you know, aren't as big because they're that close to the, you know, you can tweak things. You can, you can move it and squish it and it's malleable and the composite impression cut to cut is what counts in the end. And Phil was a very, uh, because he comes from a practical world and had transitioned into the digital world, he was the perfect, uh, perfect guy for, for aftershocks. Something's wrong with our worm, Earl. Well, what do you want me to do about it? Have a look at this, a lady in Bulgaria made it. Oh, so here's, this is the, uh, this is a man, <laughs> that is fantastic. See, this is the kind of thing that I want to see more of. I think the world needs more um, penis cozies in the shape of a, uh, of a graboid. And this actually goes right back to what Gail Hurd was talking about, doesn't it? So who, she couldn't have foreseen this. If there was a proper merchandising uh, campaign back then, then our uncircumcised worms might have been quite a hit. You can imagine all the various products that we could have um, could have produced. I like it. I like it. Tremors. Cock cozies. What does it feel like when you look back at your personal videos and photos from that time and from the Tremors shoot? I love looking back at our archival footage uh, because first of all, I mean, you look at it from, a, uh, from several different vantage points, right? Like I look back 30 years later and go, my God, how young we were. Who would have hired us? How could they possibly have thought we, uh, we knew what we were doing? Um, but then I look at the work and I go, like, oh, that, that's pretty cool. Uh, especially how it looks in the film. 
because um, there's al always, uh, you know, things that you pick apart in your mind and things you never liked and you wished you had done differently. But the, the film is just so damn good and it holds up so well. It's such a great, monsters aside, it's such a great um, ensemble film and the balance of characters and the clearly defined characters, dialogues, beautifully directed, beautifully written. Um, so I just, when I look back at it, I just get a warm, fuzzy feeling and I'm just very proud to have been chosen to be part of it because I think anybody who worked with that group of people making those creature effects would have come off looking good. And I know I'm being a little self-effacing when I say that because it's not, I'm, it's not that I'm saying that what we did wasn't a, a, a good portion of it, but it was just such a lightning in a bottle. It was a, it was a great time and a, and, a, and a great group of people. And um, I think when you watch the movie, it's one of the movies that I, from that era, that I've worked on personally that I can say, it holds up better across the board than, than some other movies that I've worked on. And it was your first big job on your own. What was that like? The enthusiasm was just sky high. So all of those things like, you know, the very cold, the very hot, the very dusty, um, the exhaustion factor, those were all sort of secondary to me because because the, the, the vision as it was laid out in the script and the opportunity that we were given was so, um, it was just, you know, it was, it was worth the work and it still is worth the work uh, because at the end of the day, you don't really think so much about the hardship or the, um, or the problems you had because the end result was so great. Uh, and even if the movie hadn't been that great, it would still be one of my fondest memories because the people were so wonderful. You know, and the location was so beautiful, and you know, you get to get up every morning and see the sunrise at Lone Pine, and uh, you know, go eat at a little funky cafe, and there was like one bar in the town where the crew would meet and fraternize and have a couple of beers, and then you go back to the little dumpy motel, and it was just absolute. It was filmmaking heaven. And is there a sentence that sums up your experience? your feelings for Tremors. I wish I had the sentence, the single sentence that sums up Tremors because I would ask the marketing department to put it on the poster so that the movie would be a big, gigantic hit theatrically. Tremors to me was sort of the little movie that could. Uh, it wasn't a big budget movie, but what it had going for it carried it even past a bad box office performance into cult status and then beyond cult status and into a, a, a franchise that continues on to this day. In that regard, it's one of the most successful movies I've ever been involved with. And uh, I think it has shown me that the, uh, you know, everything is not sort of the way Hollywood presents it where it's sort of, you know, like you go out with a big ad campaign and if it doesn't make uh, you know, 20 million bucks in its first weekend, everybody's disappointed. Um, Tremors was an, an independent style film um, that sort of like latched onto people's hearts and has uh, only continued to grow. So that's a great lesson as an artist. If you're an artist, you, know, the, you, you, you have an intent for your piece of artwork and it could go one way or go another. It has its own life. And you can't really evaluate the success of your, 
of your piece of art. It's up to others to evaluate it, and that changes over time. So you can't even worry about it. You just have to control uh, your own process and enjoy the process as you execute, because there isn't really anything else under your control other than, other than the process. And Tremors was a great um, example of that for, for all of us. How is that for a sentence? You know what, you can you do the podcast thing where you click a button and it goes at 1.5 times. All I want to say is I am booking a trip to Bulgaria as soon as, I, as soon as I'm out of this chair. I'm just glad, I will, I will continue until my dying day hauling myself out for any, any way to be a part of the um, celebration of Tremors because I think it's worth it and I think uh, anyone that sees the film generally it sparks something in them. I showed it to my daughter, I think, when at a screening when she was about maybe 12, and she just said, Dad, I have a huge crush on Kevin Bacon. And that's one thing, you know, that's something. Who doesn't have a crush on Kevin Bacon? That was special effects master Alec Gillis talking tremors. Meet us back here next Friday where we'll be joined by the director that coaxed such fantastic performances out of those giant graboids, Ron Underwood. In the meantime, if you want to brush up on your survival skills in the event of a graboid invasion, head over to the official Tremors YouTube and Facebook channel, or find us on Twitter and Instagram, at Tremors Movie. Over and out. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.